We read in verse 24, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches, riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. Father, we pause for just a moment, acknowledging your authorship of this document, of this book we call the Bible, that it is indeed the Word of God given to the people of God, that we might be encouraged by the examples, both good and bad. We thank you for this chapter, which is chock full of examples of faithful men and women. We know, Lord, that a chapter like this doesn't end here, that there are still great examples of men and women serving you faithfully abroad and here even in our own midst. And we thank you for those who exemplify that life of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. One of our most important freedoms is the ability to make choices. Freedom to choose. You notice that freedom more poignantly when you travel outside of the boundaries of this country. And you see people that don't have the freedoms to make choices like we have because of cultural restraints or civil wars or some enforced legislative uh, lifestyle that they live. We have a tremendous freedom to make choices. What we choose is absolutely critical. Not just this great power of choice, but what we choose. We make a lot about, we've got the right to choose. Yeah, we do, but what are you choosing is very important. A lot of people say, well, there's two sides to every question. Well, there's two sides to a piece of fly paper, too. But which side the fly decides to land on makes a big difference to the fly. Some choices that we make are very painful and difficult choices to make. Consider the dilemma of a father who wrote these words. He said, right next to our cabin near Austin, Texas, there was an oak tree that my son, Albert Jr., who had died in his 20s, had insisted on saving when the house was built a number of years ago. For years, I tried to steer the tree away from the house so that it would not damage it. For a while, I was successful, but as the tree grew thicker and taller, I was no longer able to control it. It kept coming closer and closer to the house, and when the wind blew, the main trunk began to sway and strike at the vital structure of the house. That oak tree had much sentimental value for me. I made up my mind that I would steer it away from the house at whatever the cost. But each time after a few months, the tension lines came loose or snapped and broke. Nature was too determined, too forceful for me. There was nothing that I could do to control the tree and pull it away from the house. Prospects for futures seemed even worse, and within a few years, at the rate it was growing, it would cause even more damage. So last Tuesday, I made up my mind. The tree had to come down. I cut its upper branches, then its lower branches, and finally the trunk itself. It was as if I was cutting my own arms, my legs, and finally my own heart out. I had cut down the tree that Albert Jr. wanted so much to save. When the last section of the trunk fell to the ground, I just sat down and wept. That was a tough choice for that man to make. 
but it was the best choice he could make. It was a choice between living with the sentimental memory, which was dear to him, you could not chide him for that, or serving the best interest of his family still alive, living in the house that even Albert Jr. himself had once lived in. He made the best choice, but it was tough. Now, there are some choices that we make that do not seem reasonable. They seem dumb to the outsider because of the risk that the choice incurs. For example, somebody who would come to his family and say, I've just sold the house, sold the business, we're going to go overseas and be a missionary. It doesn't seem reasonable to many people, especially if that person would be successful here. Why would you give all this for that? Or I think of some of the school of ministry students who had to leave their state and get rid of their possessions and move out to New Mexico, that place called Calvary Chapel, as a Bible school. I'm sure some of their relatives thought, yeah, I heard about that place. It's a cult. Why would you move to the desert from here, sell everything to go out there? It's not reasonable. It's too risky. Men and women of faith make tough choices based on an eternal value system. And see, that's the key issue. When you make a choice, the key issue really is success. You want to make a choice, the result being success. question is, how do you define success? If you define it in the temporal only, you'll make different choices than one who defines success in the eternal realm. Men and women of faith, Moses included, will make choices, tough choices, difficult choices, painful choices, based upon an eternal value system. A child looking at a box of chocolate that's opened looks inside that box and the rule is you can have only one, not more than one, but any one you want. That's a tough choice. He looks at that chocolate and he thinks, ooh, I'll get the biggest one. No, that little round one is probably peppermint cream. That's my favorite one. No, I think I'll take the longest one because that has the hard candy in it. It will last the longest. We must make decisions that outweigh the temporary and that last the longest. What will be best in the long run? Now, let's face it. A lot of the choices we make as Christian people, we will not see the payoff now. We won't see it for some time until much later in eternity. That's when the payoff comes in many of our decisions. We've seen so far in Hebrews chapter 11 a list of men and women all the way from the beginning of creation all the way up through the patriarchs, and now we come to Moses. And let's face it, this list would be incomplete without this guy. His life is squeezed into five verses, the ones we just read. And the five verses that talk about Moses encapsulate the choices that Moses made. That's basically the theme here is Moses made a bunch of decisions. Painful choices, tough decisions, but they were the best ones. There's a basic rule that I hope you learn soon if you haven't learned already. Easiest doesn't always mean best. We like the path of least resistance, but the path of least resistance can be the path of the worst decision. Ask a fish who sees that little piece of food dangling in front of him. He goes, oh, this is so easy. Yeah, but food at the end of a hook isn't always the best way to get it could be a bad move, pal. It might look good and it might look easy, but that path of least resistance, going with the flow, could be the worst decision he ever made. 
My first exposure to Moses, like some of you, was Charlton Heston. I grew up watching the Ten Commandments every year. It was on television. It's an American favorite, the dramatic story, and Charlton Heston is this great hero, and Yul Brynner, of course, plays the Pharaoh, and uh, he always brought Moses in and said, Moses, 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 in that deep voice, and Moses would always say, let my people go, and it was a dramatic movie. As I read the scripture, I found out that Moses wasn't always that dramatic. In fact, there were three periods of Moses' life that got him to that place, You could take Moses' life and divide it up into three chunks. A 40-year chunk, a 40-year chunk, and another 40-year chunk. 120 years altogether. For the first 40 years, Moses lived in Egypt, and he became something. The next 40 years, God spent showing Moses that he was nothing. Then he was usable. So the last 40 years, God took nothing and did something with him. And that's the life of a man of faith. If you think you're something, God will reduce you to nothing. And then when you go, I'm nothing, God says, good, now I can use you and make something out of you. That was the life of Moses. And using Moses' life in these verses as an example, we see in verse 24, first of all, that faith enables us to sacrifice. Faith enables us to sacrifice. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. To get the power of verse 24, a brief character sketch is in order. You need to know where Moses came from, what his life was like, before you understand what he gave up. Moses, of course, lived in Egypt, and Egypt is the destination of the Nile River. The Nile River begins at Lake Victoria, makes its way through Africa, and carries with it rich alluvial soil that's deposited on the Nile Delta in Egypt, making Egypt by the Nile River absolutely fertile. In fact, the Egyptians perfected the foot pump, which enabled them to irrigate through channels from the Nile Delta all of their crops. It was an abundant area. Especially at flood season, they would take advantage of it. And it was a lush, fertile, rich area for growing crops. Egypt was also a very progressive culture. I know that when we read ancient documents like the Old Testament, we think, oh, they lived in such a primitive culture, Egypt. It must have been horrible to live back then. They didn't know much. Well, did you know the ancient Egyptians believed that the earth was round, not flat? It took us a couple thousand more years to discover the earth was flat before we found out it was round again. They knew it was round. The Egyptians calculated the distance from the earth to the sun at around 93 million miles. They were very, very accurate. They had the temple of the sun in their capital, which was like the ancient Harvard of the ancient world. Egypt was known, of course, for its architecture, its art, its sculptors. Excavations bear eloquent testimony to the things that they were involved in artistically, architecturally. Of course, they have known that at least 80 pyramids were built as monuments over the tombs of the rulers. These were not small little things. One of the uh, biggest one found in Giza, Egypt, is 480 feet tall. It's an incredible thing to behold. An amazing culture, an advanced culture, an artistic culture. That's where Moses grew up. But the position of Moses in that culture is what's important to us. Notice it says he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You know what that means? It means he refused to be the Pharaoh. You see, history tells us, Josephus in particular, that the Pharaoh who lived in Egypt and ruled the land at that time had no sons of his own. He had only daughters. 
Moses became the adopted grandson of the Pharaoh because Moses was found by Pharaoh's daughter as he was floating down the Nile River one day. Josephus tells us that becoming the adopted grandson of the Pharaoh placed him next in line for the throne of Egypt, put him in a very interesting position, a Hebrew as a possible successor to the dynasty of the Pharaohs of Egypt, which would mean, if that's the case, he had a formal education. He was no doubt trained in the Temple of the Sun. He learned Egyptian hieroglyphics. He learned the language of the Canaanites. It also means that he had a lot of money. If you have ever seen National Geographic, uh, their little expose on King Tut, or if you've ever seen in the Cairo Museum or as it traveled around the States, those beautiful exhibitions, you can see what kind of wealth the rulers of Egypt had. They were buried in several gold caskets. Incredible wealth at their disposal. And so Moses was brought up in that kind of a culture, educated in the best place, probably had the best clothes, surrounded with riches, surrounded with resources. He might have had his own private little boat on the Nile River, private chariot, personalized license plate on the chariot, Pharaoh number two or next in line or something. He was something. He was important. He could have chased his wildest dreams. He could have what people dream of having and work for all their lives. He was bound for the top, groomed for success. He was the ancient yuppie of Egypt. He had it all. He says he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. From a worldly standpoint, he sacrificed everything for nothing. He gave it all up. But he saw differently, as we're going to see in a minute. He gave up that prestige and power for a purpose. Before we move on to why he did it, there's an application here. Denying self, denying self is an essential part of following Jesus Christ. That is not preached much today. Because it's not an attractive message. User-friendly churches, as they call themselves, would make people feel better by telling them, exert yourself, believe in yourself. Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow after me. If you're not willing to do that, you're not willing to follow Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor during the war, World War II. He was killed at 39 years of age, slaughtered actually, killed in a Nazi concentration camp. And he was quoted as saying, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Socrates said, know thyself. Freud said, be thyself. Jesus said, give thyself. Moses sacrificed an incredible background, an incredible amount of resources. He was able to do what John says in his epistle, do not love the world, neither the things that are in this world, for the world is passing away, and all of the passions of it, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. You know, Moses could have instead, instead of saying, I'm going to give all this up and do what God wants me to do, what I'm going to do is stay right where I'm at because uh, I'm Egyptian, basically. I walk like an Egyptian. I talk like an Egyptian. I've got the money of an Egyptian. Uh, I look like an Egyptian. So I will stay where I'm at and probably be able to help my brethren, the Hebrew people, a lot better from this vantage point than becoming a slave like they are. But that's not what God wanted him to do. And he knew it. And he exchanged what he had for the will of God. In fact, he traded for something better 
You might say, wait a minute, what's better than that? What's better than being the child of the Pharaoh, so to speak, next in line, all the resources, the wealth, the position, the influence and the power? That's an important question. When somebody gives something up and sacrifices something, usually he does it for something better. If you ask a person, hey, why would you quit your job? You expect an answer like, because I got a better job offered to me. Now, let's say Ed McMahon pulls up in front of your house in a long stretch limousine, and there's an envelope with your name on it, Publishers Clearinghouse, and your name is on it. You know, the contest that nobody wins, but there's always people who say they win. I'm sure people win. I've never known anybody who has, but I'm sure they're out there. Let's say he pulls out in front of your house, and he's got a check for you for a million bucks. He comes up to your door and says, congratulations, you won a million dollars. And you say, nah, I don't need it. I got something better. You do? What? Moses, what is it that you have better than the riches of Egypt, the position of Pharaoh, that you would give it up for? Let's see what he traded it in for. Verse 25. Choosing rather to suffer affliction. Causes us to scratch our heads a little bit, I hope. What? He gave up Egypt and he made a deliberate choice to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses was about 40 years old when he made that choice. And uh, by today's standards, I'm sure uh, somebody would look at that and say, oh, it was a midlife crisis he was going through. Uh, You know, he didn't know what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. He's about that age. And, you know, it's understandable. No, this was his spiritual choice. In fact, back in verse 24, when it says he became of age, the wording here is megas genomenas, which means he became someone great. He became someone great. He reached a position in Egypt that was the highest position that he could, given his background and his age. He had become great. And he swapped his greatness. He swapped the prestige and the power. And he chose, rather, to suffer affliction with the people of God. Faith enables us to sacrifice. Faith enables us to select the right thing, the best thing for the will of God. Now, can you picture what it was like the day that he announced to uh, his family what he was doing? Picture it for a minute. There's his foster mother, the woman who saw him bouncing around in a little basket on the Nile River. And she decided by her good grace or whatever reason, we know it was the will of God, but she decided to take that basket out and raise that child and spend the time and the money to adopt this child. This is his foster mother. She had given him everything. She educated him with the best she could. Can you imagine the heartache and the tears that flowed? As he said, Mom, I'm not your son anymore. I'm not going to be called your son. I'm not going to take the throne, even if it's offered to me. This land is not my land. These people, the Hebrews, the slaves, it's my people. And I've decided that I'm going to just cash in everything and I'm going to become one of them. How do you think she took it? She probably said, you are so ungrateful. We've given you everything. We've given you the best. You've been educated in the best schools. You would give it up to be one of them? You flipped your royal lid, Moses. You've been riding chariots in that sun way too long. Some of you can relate, however, to that choice. Because some of you have had to go home to a spouse or parents or somebody and say, uh, I love you, but I'm not really a part of the religious system anymore that you brought me up in. I'm a Christian. I follow the person of Jesus Christ. 
What? Was their reaction? What? We've given you the best religious system. You've always been a Christian. Why wouldn't you continue in the traditions we've given you? Why would you embrace this new fad that they call it, being born again, follow Jesus? What does that mean? We've given you the best. Or some of you have had to go to parents or friends and say, I've sold the business or I've quit college. I'm going to go be a missionary. What? We've raised you with the best. We've given you the best education. And you turn from us? There's a man in history called Baron Justinian von Welts. Very wealthy, man of royalty, who gave up everything to become a missionary in South America, actually. He is buried in a forgotten grave, albeit not forgotten by God, in South America. Before he left, he wrote this letter. What is it to me to bear the title well-born? when I am born again to Christ? What is it to me to bear the title Lord when I desire to be a servant of Christ? What is it to me to be called your grace when I have need of God's grace? All of these vanities I will away with and all else I will lay at the feet of my dear Lord and Jesus, Savior Jesus Christ. When I hear that, I can't help but think of a few people that come to mind. Jay and Sonny McLaughlin who left this fellowship, sold the business, got rid of everything to move to Uganda to share the gospel in a very hard kind of a way, primitive kind of a way, but very devoted to Christ. Think of people like Carlos Casco, brought his whole family down to Mexico to train tribal leaders to become pastors and to share the gospel in that part of the world, even under persecution of late. I think of Jim and Grace Haraldson that I just met in Mogadishu, husband and wife, living in downtown Mogadishu, inoculating children against disease and discipling people, some of the native Somalis, sharing the gospel with them. Think of a doctor I met in the Sudan last week, a neurologist, a guy who had an enormous position here in America, gave it up, gave up his practice, to go to Sudan to share the gospel, to fight the flies and the disease, but to be a witness of the gospel. People would look at that and say, that's stupid. That's sheer idiocy, or it's sheer faith. Willingness to sacrifice and to select. Not easy. Would you turn with me, uh, keeping uh, a marker here, to Philippians chapter 3. I always affectionately like to say flip to Philippians. In this case, Philippians 3. Philippians 3, Paul gets very personal, talks about himself. And we get an insight into what kind of a man he was. We kind of think of Paul as this crude little guy running around the landscape of the ancient world with not much going for him. That's why he did what he did. But in Philippians 3, he says... Verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I am more so. He says, now if we want to brag about background and resources and those kinds of things, I can brag a lot. You know, Paul the Apostle said, God has not chosen many wise or many noble, but Paul was the exception to that. He was wise. He was noble. He was well-trained. He was a man of men. And he had quite a background. Uh, he said, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. In other words, I was born Jewish. I was circumcised according to the ritual. I come from a, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the royal tribe where King Saul came, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law. I was a Pharisee. In other words, I was the top drawer echelon in Judaism. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. You want to talk about being a religious zealot? I killed people who didn't believe in what I believed in. 
I was born on the right side of the tracks. I had all of the resources religiously and with wisdom, according to this world, anybody could have. Concerning righteousness, which is of the law, I was blameless. Quite a statement. Verse 7. What things were gain to me, I counted it loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, or as the King James says, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Notice verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Everything I had, everything that was worth something to me, of value, all my pedigree, all my background, it is absolutely nothing. I would rather have what God has for me and just be included in his righteousness if that means resurrection power or suffering and death. Allow me to read what we just read in a contemporary English translation. It will give a little more impact and punch. He said, the very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I am tearing up and throwing out with the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought that was going for me is insignificant. It is dog dung. I dumped it all in the trash that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. Those are words of a stupid man or words of a man of faith. And we know they're words of a man of faith because he was motivated after he gave it all up to continue. And he said in Philippians, and I still count them as loss. In other words, 30 years ago when I became a Christian, 30 years after that he, he was writing this, I counted it as loss. I still do that I might know him. So faith enables us to sacrifice. Faith enables us to select, make the best choices. And thirdly, faith enables us to see. And so I'd take you back now to Hebrews chapter 11. Look at the next couple of verses. Verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward... By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured a seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Those two verses, three verses, give us the secret of Paul's life, uh, excuse me, of Moses' life, the secret which made him able to make such sacrifices and make the right choices. He was able to see more. He was able to see beyond the temporary. I want you to compare a couple verses with me. Look at uh, verse 25. Passing pleasures. Uh, verse 26. He looked to the reward. Not at the consequences. He looked ahead to the reward. Verse 27. He saw him who was invisible. Perspective is everything. You've all heard the saying, well, it just depends on how you look at it. Right? Uh, consider the tactic that one college girl tried to use with her parents and it worked. She had low grades and no money. So she wrote a letter. Dear Mom and Dad, I just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy named Jim. He quit high school after grade 11 to get married. About a year ago, he got a divorce. So we've been going steady for two months and plan to get married in fall. 
Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment. I think I'm pregnant. At any rate, I've dropped out of school last week, although I might like to finish college sometime in the future. On the next page, she said, Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is false. None of it is true. But Mom and Dad, it is true that I got a C in French and flunk math. It is true that I'm going to need some more money for my tuition payments. Don't you think her parents were glad to fork over the money for those tuition payments after reading that letter? They just sighed when they read the second part of that letter. This gal was smart. She knew that after reading the first part, if they could get a different perspective on it, after reading the second part, they'd give her anything she wants. If she would have just said, I need more money, I'm not doing well, they would have reprimanded her. But seen in a different light, oh, perspective is everything. How do you live your life? It depends on how you see it. Perspective is everything. You can view it in the temporary. You can view it in the eternal. What Moses did when he became of age, when he became great, when he traded all of that in for a life of affliction and suffering, when he decided, you know, I'm going to go God's way. I'm going to identify with him and his people. It's going to be hard. I'm going to be out in the desert instead of the Nile Delta. I'm going to leave all this and do that. If he was living just for the here and now, it was a stupid choice. Because if you're looking for immediate gratification, hey man, Egypt is the place to stay. You've got it all right here. But if you live for the eternal, then Moses made the best choice. And I want you to notice how it's put in our verse. It says, esteeming, notice, esteeming the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. That word esteeming means careful thought to weigh the pros and the cons after weighing and comparing the facts of a case. Moses knew what he was doing. It wasn't a midlife crisis. It wasn't the emotion of a moment. He thought about it. He weighed the pros and cons. He looked at what Egypt had to offer. He saw what God had to offer. And he said, you know what? This is a better deal, what God has to offer. If I go God's way, it's going to be hard. It's going to be enduring. It could mean suffering. But in the long run, what God has to offer is a whole lot better than what Egypt has to offer. This is the best choice I could make after weighing the pros and the cons. So I'm going to go ahead and go God's way. There's a principle there. The worst that God would ever allow you to go through is better than the best the world can offer you. It's better than the best the world can offer you. If you look at it in the long run. If you look at it just for this earth, immediate gratification, it's different. But if you look at it in the big picture... You see things differently. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 8. I consider, I consider, I'm thinking about this, that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Another key phrase, notice, passing pleasures of sin in verse 25. Passing pleasures of sin. Let's not kid ourselves. Sin is fun. Let's not Christianize it and say, oh, it's just unfulfilling. Hey, sin is a blast. It is fun. If it weren't fun, people wouldn't do it. It appeals to our senses. There is a gratification that it seems to promise. It tantalizes us. It feeds our pride. It stimulates. But there's two characteristics about sin that the world usually forgets or doesn't see at all. Number one, sin is absolutely evil. And number two, it is passing. 
no matter how glamorous and glittery it looks and it promises to fulfill, it is designed to fade away. That's why often a person who takes a drug takes another one and another one and a different kind and a, or a person who starts in pornography goes from a soft porn all the way through the stages because he's not gratified now. It's passing in its pleasure. What it promises, it never gives. It promises fulfillment. It doesn't give it. It's a passing pleasure. I have heard about a tribe in Africa. And they get a new king every seven years. It's an odd setup. The king reigns for seven years, and after his reign is completed, he is killed. While he is king, he is a despot. He has absolute authority. He is the total dictator, the total ruler. He is in charge. He has the best of everything. He can live with the most plush whatever. But after seven years, it's over. You think nobody would be in line to get his job. You'd be surprised. They know they're going to die anyway. Hey, let's go out in style. I'm sure he has a great time being king. But it's passing, isn't it? It's not going to last very long. You know, David learned this lesson. The king of Israel, one night he looked at a woman called Bathsheba. There was a pleasure sensation there as he looked at her. He thought, if I could only get her, this would be fun. David committed adultery. You know what? It was fun. I think David had a lot of fun that night, to be very blunt and honest with you. But that moment of fun to have Bathsheba in bed brought a lifetime of consequences. And even years later, David said, I see my transgression, my sin is ever before me. It was pleasurable, but it was passing. And the consequences outlasted the pleasure. Folks, the obedient path is not always the most fun. It's not always the easiest. Following God isn't always the path of least resistance. Sometimes and often it's the path of most resistance. But the path of God is the best for us, and God knows best. Father knows best. He knows what's good for us. He's chosen that path not to cramp our style, but He knows what's best. You may not be following Jesus Christ this morning. You might say, yeah, it's good to come to church, but I'm not born again. I'm not like some of these Christians around me, and uh, I'm just having too much fun. I'm having a lot of fun. Be careful. That package that you're holding on to, whatever pleasure sensation in this world It looks glittery and it's packaged really nicely. Open it up. It could be a bomb inside. The devil packages things up that looks really good and satisfying. But it won't last. You say, well, I'll take my chances on that. It's lasted pretty long so far. And there are obstinate people. Just, I'm going to hold on. stuck in my ways. You know, it's interesting. From my vantage point up here, you can usually read an audience. You can tell if they're tracking, if they're interested, what they think about it. Uh, sometimes you get looks from people that are just like this. <laughs> Try speaking to some people like that sometimes. So it's an interesting kind of a sensation. But you can just read all over them. Uh, they're saying, I'm not going to budge. You're not going to convince me. I am not going to move. I like where I'm at. I'm not going to follow Jesus Christ. I'm having enough fun. Well, listen, I have some advice for you. If you're determined in that course then suck this world like an orange. Every drop of fun and pleasure you can get out of it. Seriously. Because this is the closest you'll get to heaven. If that's all you're looking for, you better turn it up to ten and go for the gusto because this is as close as you get to heaven. If you're a believer this morning, no matter what sorrow and pain and heartache you have ever received in this life, this is the closest you'll get to hell. 
I don't know about you, but there's a tremendous comfort being a believer. David said, why do the wicked prosper? Look at me, I'm serving you and it's not easy. How come they, they look so happy? Then David said, but when I consider their end, it's different. Life must be lived in the eternal perspective and choices must be made with that perspective. Don't seem to be wise for a moment and be a fool for eternity. There was a 32-year-old man who became president of a bank, which was young to become the president and have such esteem for his age to have that kind of a position and responsibility. He knew he was young. He knew he was inexperienced. He wanted advice. So he went to the chairman of the uh, board, an old, sagacious gentleman who had been around and he knew his way around. The young bank president looked at him and said, "Uh, I need your help. I need some advice. I really don't know what to do. I haven't been president very long. What's your advice to me? What do I need to do? Uh, The chairman of the board, being older, uh, reduced his speech to just a few words. He looked at him and said, good decisions. Make good decisions. The young man, being impatient, said, well, I hope for a little more advice than that. I don't have the... How do I make good decisions? The old man said, experience. Experience. The young man was very um, um, impatient. He said, look, I don't have experience. I need more than that. How do I get experience that I might make good choices? The old guy said, wrong decisions. (laughs) We've made enough of those, haven't we? We've all made wrong decisions, right? We do it every day when hopefully we make some right decisions. But there are some decisions, and this eternal decision is the most important. We live our life based upon some value system. Once you determine what that value system is, the choices you make will be a lot easier. You know, you get a D in your college class, you think it's all over. Well, if you look at it in the light of eternity, it's not that bad. You say, oh, well, I've been living in sin lately and I've been pleasing the Lord, but oh, I'm so busy. And well, in the light of eternity, it's a major choice. Let's make the right choices for the long haul. Let's pray. Lord, it is absolutely amazing that you have given to us and left at our disposal that power to make a decision, to make a choice. We have made wrong choices. There are some choices that we have made that have been right. In the eternal perspective, however, Father, the right choice would be to choose to sacrifice, in some cases, what the world would deem as prestigious or important to select a path that you have selected because we see with an eternal vision. Help us to do that, Father. In Jesus' name.